The Global Democracy and Justice Lecture Series with Oded Gilad and Dina Freeman. Episode 24, A World Parliament. One of the central institutions in a future global democracy would be a world parliament, a place where representatives of all of humanity can sit together, discuss and debate and make decisions about common global issues that affect us all. The idea of a world parliament has a long history. During the French Revolution at the end of the 18th century, cosmopolitan revolutionaries called for the creation of a world republic with a world parliament. And then in 1842, the British poet Alfred Tennyson mentioned the idea of a parliament of mankind as a solution to the world's problems in the poem Locksley Hall, where he writes, till the war drum throbbed no longer and the battle flags were furled in the parliament of man, the federation of the world. There the common sense of most shall hold a fretful realm in awe and the kindly earth shall slumber lapped in universal law. Now in recent years, the idea of a world parliament has moved from being just a vague and poetic aspiration to being the center of scholarly and activist calls to democratize the world system. There are now lively discussions about what a world parliament should look like and how it could realistically be established. And there are several campaigns and initiatives aiming at making a world parliament a reality. The need for a world parliament is obvious. It would give people a say in politics and decision-making at the global level. At the moment, we're excluded from expressing our wishes and opinions at this level and can only express them at the national level if we happen to live in a country with a national democracy. But since the 1980s and the 1990s, more and more important decisions have started to be taken at the global level, where we, the people, have no say. And this is really important, because decisions taken at the global level can and do affect our lives in so many ways. And the basic principle of democracy is that people should have a say in the decisions that affect their lives. So, for example, decisions taken at the World Trade Organization impact on many people around the world in all sorts of ways. They can lead to workers losing their jobs, or to consumers finding that their food is now grown from genetically modified seeds, or is full of chemical additives, or to patients finding that the drugs that they require are now really, really expensive because of the WTO patent rules. Decisions taken at the global level about how to deal with climate change or not to deal with it affect us all as our lives and livelihoods are disrupted on a warming planet. Decisions about global finance and sovereign debt impinge directly on our savings and on our country's ability to provide public services, and so on and so on and so on. So since these decisions affect us, we should have a say in them. And at the moment we don't, and it's a really serious problem. A world parliament would provide a place for citizens' representatives to have their say in these kinds of global decisions. It would provide a mechanism to connect the decision makers with the people affected by their decisions. And it would provide a mechanism of accountability, so that if we don't like the decisions, then we can vote these people out. And as in national democracies, this would incentivize politicians to act according to the wishes of the people. A world parliament would bring into being a very different kind of voice within global politics. Whereas the UN General Assembly is composed of representatives of governments, who ultimately represent institutional interests within the nation-state system, 
a world parliament would be made up of elected individuals who would speak for citizens and be accountable to them. So while the General Assembly is kind of similar to the US Senate, representing states, a world parliament would be a bit like the US House of Representatives, representing individuals. A world parliament would also help to develop a global or planetary consciousness. It would be a place where discussions centre on what is best for the world as a whole, and not what is best for my particular country. In a world parliament, rather like in the European parliament, there would be representatives from both government parties and opposition parties. And these representatives would not sit or vote in country blocks. Instead, they would sit and vote in ideological blocks. So left-wing politicians from many different countries would sit together and vote together on left-wing ideas, while right-wing or green or liberal or what have you politicians would similarly vote together in their blocks. And this could ultimately lead to the formation of global political parties and to parliamentary debates about how best to organise the world system from different ideological perspectives. There would be open discussion and debate about different approaches to globalisation. Now that would be refreshing. And there could also be discussions about how to solve the major global problems that are currently facing us all. Climate change, COVID, inequality, biodiversity loss, and so on. Rather than states negotiating according to their national interests, which as we have seen gets us nowhere, we would have citizens' representatives discussing collectively how to solve these problems. That's what we need. And ultimately, a fully developed and fully democratic world parliament would be able to legislate world law. This would be completely different from so-called international law, which is largely voluntary and unenforceable, and which applies only to states and not to citizens or to corporations. World law would be democratically created enforceable law that would apply to everyone, everywhere. It would apply to the rich as well as the poor to the transnational corporations, as well as to states, and to those in powerful countries, as well as those in weaker countries. World law would be law created by the representatives of the people of the world, and it would be a kind of supranational law that would be able to constrain states. With world law, human rights could be enforced, global taxes could be legislated, and worldwide maximum levels of carbon emissions could be set. None of that's possible with international law. Now, a world parliament would probably not start out with all of those powers, and in itself it would not fully democratise the whole global system, but it would be a very important first step. It would be the first institution to provide a direct link between global politics and the grassroots, between global governance and global citizens. And it would be the first institution to take a global, rather than international, approach to world problems. And once up and running, a world parliament could lead the effort to transform and democratise the rest of the world system. So the reasons that we need a world parliament are clear. But how do we get there? How do we make a world parliament a reality? Well, activists have been pushing for a world parliament for quite a long time. In the years before and after the First World War, activists in the peace movement called for the creation of a world parliament and world law because they saw these as necessary for the establishment of a rules-based world system in which countries could solve their disputes through legal means rather than resorting to war. Their efforts contributed to the creation of the Permanent Court of Arbitration, the Permanent Court of International Justice and the League of Nations. 
but did not lead to a real world parliament or to world law. There was another push for a world parliament in the years immediately after the Second World War, when the notions of world federation and world government were extremely popular. But at this time we got the United Nations and the International Court of Justice, and again, no supranational world parliament. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, discussions started up again about creating a world parliament. In 1978, a People's Assembly for the UN took place in parallel with the first UN special session on disarmament. And in the following years, the Swedish Peace Council and the Swedish UN Association organised a Swedish People's Parliament on Disarmament. Building on these ideas, the People's Assembly movement began to grow, holding world citizen assemblies in several cities around the world. Then, in 1982, during the second UN special session on disarmament, the Medical Association for Prevention of War, an organisation based in the UK and led by Geoffrey Siegel, presented a proposal for the study of a UN Second Assembly, or UN People's Assembly. This proposal suggested that such an assembly could be established at the UN in a relatively straightforward manner, under Article 22 of the UN Charter, which allows the General Assembly to establish any subsidiary bodies that it deems necessary to support its functions. In 1983, Siegel brought a number of like-minded organisations together to form the International Network for a UN Second Assembly, or INFUSA. And in the following years, they worked to promote this idea in the NGO community, and they also submitted a request to the UN calling for it to study proposals for the establishment of a second chamber. Whilst they did not receive a response from the UN, their ideas did get support from a number of NGOs, particularly those dedicated to World Federation and World Citizenship, including the World Federalist Movement, the People's Congress, and the Bertrand Russell Peace Foundation. But whilst all these organisations wanted to create a second chamber at the UN, which would represent individual citizens, there were very many different ideas about what this chamber should look like. Should it consist of parliamentarians chosen by national governments? Or parliamentarians directly elected by the people? Or maybe it should consist of NGOs and civil society representatives? Should it be subsidiary to the UN General Assembly or equal to it? Should it have legislative powers to make world law or should it only make recommendations? And so on and so on. And so in 1989, Infusa, in collaboration with the New York-based World Citizens Assembly, created CAMDUN, Conferences for a More Democratic United Nations, a series of conferences where activists would come together to explore and discuss the various options and issues. Building on these discussions, in 1992, the World Federalist Movement published a small booklet written by Dieter Heinrich, setting out their vision for United Nations Parliamentary Assembly, or UNPA. It was the first publicly available thorough analysis, and it set out a pragmatic and realistic proposal for developing a world parliament in a staged evolutionary process modelled on the progressive development of the European Parliament. During the 1990s, the idea of a UN Parliamentary Assembly began to gain ground beyond activist circles. In 1993, the Standing Committee on External Affairs and International Trade of the Canadian House of Commons recommended that Canada should support the development of a United Nations Parliamentary Assembly and offered to host the preparatory meeting in the Canadian Parliament buildings as the centrepiece of its celebrations for the UN's 50th anniversary in 1995. UN policy experts Erskine Childers and Brian Urquhart 
recommended the establishment of a UNPA in their 1994 report, Renewing the United Nations System. And that same year, both the European Parliament and the Interaction Council, an association of former heads of state and government, suggested that the possibility of establishing a UNPA should be studied. And then in the year 2000, the President of the Czech Republic, Václav Havel, called for an elected world parliament in his speech at the UN's Millennium Summit. Throughout the 1990s, the Campaign for a Democratic United Nations, the International Network for United Nations Second Assembly and the Global People's Assembly Movement circulated more detailed UNPA proposals and other organisations, such as One World Trust, began publishing analyses of how to proceed in the current political situation. Academics also began to get interested in the idea of a world parliament, and in the late 1990s and early 2000s, international law professors Richard Falk and Andrew Strauss published a series of academic articles exploring the need for a world parliament and considering the possibilities for establishing such a body. As more and more activists, academics and policy experts began to think about a world parliament, a variety of ideas began to emerge. In particular, there was a divide between those who thought that a world parliament should consist of elected parliamentary representatives and sit within the UN system, and those who thought that a world parliament should consist of directly elected individuals and sit outside of the UN system, and indeed, outside of the formal state system altogether. The latter view was mainly voiced by the Global People's Assembly movement, who in the year 2000 held the first Global People's Assembly. Despite the advantage of being able to move forward without having to wait for states' agreement, they soon found that their assembly had little legitimacy amongst the broader public, and could simply be ignored. Nonetheless, there have been several other attempts to try to organise a world parliament outside of the UN system. In the early 2000s, British journalist George Monbiot suggested that the World Social Forum, the annual meeting of thousands of social movements and activists from around the world could form the nucleus of a future world parliament if it was properly expanded and democratised. His ideas were discussed at the World Social Forum in 2004. But at that time many activists favoured localist approaches and they were nervous about globalist approaches and thus they couldn't agree a way forward. There is also the idea that a democratic world parliament could effectively exist on the internet. Blockchain technologies could be developed to build a transparent and incorruptible system, and then individuals from all around the world could simply log on and vote directly on all manner of key issues. This would lead to a form of decentralised world parliament, based not on representative democracy, but on direct democracy. Now there are many challenges with this approach, not least getting the technology right, but there are several groups working on it at the moment, including academics such as Liev Orgad and Ehud Shapiro, and activists such as Rasmus Tembergen with his United Humans approach, which is supported by Democracy Without Borders, and Siri Santiago with his organisation Democracy Earth. Now, in contrast to these approaches, other activists thought that the World Parliament should sit within the UN system in order to be properly recognised and to have widely accepted legitimacy. While the flaws of the UN system are obvious, it is still the central organisation that brings together all the countries of the world and which sits at the centre of the contemporary global governance system. So rather than trying to create a parallel system outside of the UN, these activists argued that it would be much better to create a world parliament inside the UN. And they have suggested three different ways that it could be established. One idea was that it could be established through a standalone treaty, signed initially by around 30 states. This would be enough to get the body established, 
But then obviously more states would need to join in order to give it democratic legitimacy. The promoters of this approach argue that it would be much easier to get states to join a body that already exists than to vote to create it in the first place. And thus starting with a small coalition of the willing would be a good way to get things moving. At the other end of the spectrum, another idea was to establish a world parliament in the UN by amending the UN Charter, under Article 109. If done this way, then a much stronger and more robust parliament could be created at the outset, with considerable legislative powers. However, amending the UN Charter requires the support of a two-thirds majority of all UN member states, plus the agreement of all the permanent members of the Security Council. And this is really hard to achieve. In the middle was a third idea, to establish a parliamentary assembly at the UN as an advisory body to the General Assembly. This could be done really easily under Article 22 of the UN Charter, which as I mentioned before, allows the General Assembly to establish any subsidiary bodies that it deems necessary to support its functions. So this approach would not need any reform of the Charter and would only require the support of a two-thirds majority of UN members who are present and voting on that day. And crucially, it would not require the support of the Security Council. Once established, this parliamentary assembly could itself become a force for change within the UN. And over time, it could evolve into a stronger body. In a similar way to how the European Parliament had started out as a purely consultative body in the 1950s, and then over time gradually transformed and took on more powers. In much the same way, the nascent UN Parliamentary Assembly could be expected to evolve into a stronger body and ultimately become a real-world parliament. So out of these three options, it was this third option that quickly began to emerge as the most popular, as activists, parliamentarians and scholars recognised its potential to bring about a change that was both achievable and sufficiently inclusive. In 2003, the Congress of the Socialist International, meeting in Sao Paulo, endorsed the goal of a UN Parliamentary Assembly, or UNPA, followed in 2005 by the Congress of the Liberal International and in 2008 by the Green World Congress. And in 2005, a large group of Swiss parliamentarians published an open letter to UN Secretary General Kofi Annan asking him to look into the proposal of a UNPA. Seeing the momentum beginning to build, in 2007, the Committee for a Democratic UN, which had been formed in Germany in 2003, and which would later change its name to Democracy Without Borders, initiated the launch of the International Campaign for a UNPA, in collaboration with the World Federalist Movement, the Society for Threatened Peoples, and several other partners. The idea was to bring together various different organisations promoting a UN Parliamentary Assembly, so that they could work together in a concerted effort to bring a UNPA into reality. Former UN Secretary-General Boutros Boutros Ghali sent a supportive message to the participants of the new campaign, saying, and I quote, Democracy within the state will diminish in importance if the process of democratisation does not move forward at the international level. Therefore, we need to promote the democratisation of globalisation before globalisation destroys the foundations of national and international democracy. And in 2008, he presided over the first international meeting of the campaign. The UNPA campaign suggests a three-stage approach to creating a world parliament in the UN. The first stage would be the creation of a UN parliamentary assembly as a consultative body of the General Assembly. In this initial stage, the functions of the UN parliamentary assembly would be limited to providing support for the work of the General Assembly's committees and improving communication between the UN the national parliaments and the world public. 
delegates would initially be chosen by their parliaments from the members of their respective national parliaments. In the second stage, the UN Parliamentary Assembly would consolidate into a more democratic institution with its representatives directly elected by the world's citizens. Its powers would also increase. For example, it might have co-decision powers with the General Assembly with regard to the UN budget and the appointment of the UN Secretary General. And it could have the right to submit draft resolutions to the General Assembly and to ECOSOC for consideration. As a democratically elected parliamentary body, it would have tremendous moral authority and it would be able to hold other powers to account. It could review the decisions taken by governments, by international bodies, such as the UN General Assembly, the World Bank, and the World Trade Organization, and if appropriate, publish critical reports and bring matters to light. And people affected by the negative actions of governments, international bodies, or transnational corporations would be able to petition the World Parliament to look into the matter. And while not yet a full legal and judicial system, a critical report from the World Parliament would be able to bring to bear a significant moral authority on the body in question. And finally, in the third stage, the UN Parliamentary Assembly would evolve into a true World Parliament, directly elected by the world's people and with substantial parliamentary powers. It would then be a primary organ of the UN, like the General Assembly or the Security Council, and would be able to legislate universally binding regulations and world law. For the time being, the campaign is pushing to reach stage one, with the creation of a UN Parliamentary Assembly as a simple consultative body with very limited real powers. For some people, this approach is too slow and gradual, while for others, it's far too radical. But for many, it offers a sensible and balanced way to bring about incremental institutional change. Since the creation of the campaign, support for a UNPA has continued to grow. In 2007, the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Canadian House of Commons announced that it supported the establishment of a UNPA, followed shortly by the Pan-African Parliament, and in the following years also the Latin American Parliament, the Mercosur Parliament, and the European Parliament. The campaign's call has so far been endorsed by 1,732 current and former members of Parliament from 135 countries, and this number continues to rise. It also has the support of a long list of current and former heads of state, foreign ministers, Nobel laureates, professors, and numerous eminent people from a variety of sectors, ranging from the Tibetan spiritual leader the Dalai Lama to British actress Emma Thompson, and from former NASA astronaut Edgar Mitchell to the popular Senegalese musician Yusu Ndor. The campaign's coordinator, Andreas Bummel, regularly meets with parliamentarians, ambassadors and UN officials to advocate for the creation of a UNPA and to move it up the policy agenda. In 2021, a large group of over 150 NGOs, including Greenpeace, ActionAid, Civicus and Global Justice Now, came together to issue a call for more inclusive global governance, including a UN Parliamentary Assembly. And many of them then took part in the Global People's Assembly, which took place in September, in parallel to the 76th meeting of the UN General Assembly. So the momentum is building as more organisations and more individuals get involved. If you want to join the campaign for a UN Parliamentary Assembly, you can check out their website at www.unpacampaign.org and sign your name to endorse the campaign. You can also write to your Member of Parliament and ask them to endorse the campaign and to raise the matter in parliamentary discussions in your state or your country. If you're a member of a political party or an NGO, you can present the campaign to the board or the General Assembly and see if you can get them to join up too. And if you have time to volunteer, 
Get in touch with the UNPA campaign through their website. There are always interesting things to do, and the more people that get involved, the better. And finally, every year in late October, there is the Global Week of Action for a World Parliament. During this week, activists from all around the world organise events and activities to highlight the need for a World Parliament. Check out their website at www.worldparliamentnow.org to see if there are activities taking place near you or to use their ideas for actions to organise an action yourself. Everyone can play a part in making a World Parliament a reality. So if you think the world would be a better place with a World Parliament, then join in and take action now. The Global Democracy and Justice Lecture Series is also available as videos on YouTube and other platforms. If you found the ideas in this episode interesting, please share it.